This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Implementing value-based care can help providers improve patient health and reduce care costs, but it could also present the opportunity to explore new and emerging areas of research and breakthrough treatments that can revolutionize healthcare as we know it today. Embracing such a paradigm shift is for the mindful who acknowledge that certain aspects of medicine are not working as intended. And if we're to truly attain better patient outcomes at a lower cost, we must consider emerging areas of research that can create knowledge in the practice of medicine. And on this week's podcast, you will hear about some of the research being done to further scientific rigor and expertise in the study of psychedelic therapy. In clinical research settings around the world, renewed investigations are taking place on the use of psychedelic substances for treating illnesses such as addiction, depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Psychedelics fell from medical grace nearly half a century ago, the reputation mired by associations with counterculture drug excesses and Cold War era enhanced interrogation. But now a new wave of research has returned psychedelics as potential candidates to treat mental health disorders. Listeners, I'm, I'm very excited for us to be joined this week by Dr. Charles B. Nemiroff, MD, PhD, co-director of the Center for Psychedelic Research and Therapy at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Nemiroff is one of the nation's most influential psychiatrists and has published more than 1,100 research studies, and his research is currently supported by grants and by groups such as the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. His research is focused on the pathophysiology of mood and anxiety disorders, with a focus on the role of child abuse and neglect as a major risk factor. He's also conducted research on the role of mood disorders as a risk factor for major medical disorders, including heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. At the Center of Psychedelic Research and Therapy, he aims to advance the application of psychedelics for the treatment of mental health disorders through impactful clinical research. Additionally, the center looks to improve the health of those suffering from severe depression, anxiety, and PTSD through psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and research that's focused heavily on military veterans and adults affected by early childhood trauma. Well, Race to Value listeners, you're going to learn a lot this week about psychedelic research and emerging 
therapeutic paradigm for behavioral health. You're going to be hearing from one of the leading researchers out there. If you like this episode or some of our other episodes, please continue to support us by tuning in each and every week. We're committed to bringing you the information and the intelligence to, to help drive value transformation. And we also have a newsletter on racetovalue.org that you can sign up for weekly updates on our content. And of course, we'd love a review on Apple Podcasts in a, in a rating if if you're so inclined. So without further delay, let's let's learn something different this week as we're hearing from Charles B. Nemiroff as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Nemiroff, welcome to the Race to Value. It is such a pleasure to be with you today. It's great to be with both of you. Well, as we begin our conversation today, I wanted to briefly touch on the history of psychedelic research. The field of human-based research into psychedelic drugs has, in the last 10 years, become a legitimate field of study after decades of repression by governments around the world. And after 20 years of intermission, you know, Rick Strassman was the first person in the U.S. to undertake human research with psychedelic substances with his research on N-N-dimethyltryptamine, otherwise known as DMT. And since that time, we've experienced a renaissance of psychedelic research with renewed media and medical interest in LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, ayahuasca, DMT, and ketamine. Can you walk us through memory lane to provide our listeners with some context and background on psychedelic research and and also with all this renewed interest in the potential for psychedelic therapies, have we now reached a moment in our culture where psychedelics are no longer a punchline associated with the Woodstock generation? Well, let's start off with the fact that I was actually an attendee at Woodstock. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> you have some personal knowledge about Woodstock. And it was really quite a remarkable experience. Having said that, the history of psychedelics is really quite interesting, as you you know undoubtedly know, as as your listeners will know. Uh, psychedelic medications have been used by a variety of cultures going back many many hundreds of years, and that in the 1960s, Timothy Leary, together with Ramadas, who was uh, one of his colleagues at Harvard, Richard Alpert. Uh, was his original name, became interested in studying psychedelics. And that research, which started in a very uh, conventional way, uh, became captured by a generation um, and started using psychedelics recreationally. And there was just a tremendous backlash um, uh, in the 1970s um, uh, in which psychedelics became virtually impossible to study. Uh, by any legitimate academic uh, investigators. And the field sort of uh, uh, stayed in this limbo in which there was this um, recreational use of illegal psychedelics, largely for some kind of spiritual awakening, but that uh, really serious research, with the exception of Rick Strassman's um, a groundbreaking study on DMT, there was very little done uh, until uh, the last decade. And then starting, you know, about 20 years ago, I would guess, there was uh, the notion that psychedelics might play a role in the treatment of serious psychiatric disorders. It's very, very important to distinguish between the use 
of psychedelics for individuals who are quote unquote normal and who are engaging in the use of psychedelics as a spiritual and a self-improvement a kind of experience. And in that setting, psychedelics is believed uh, as a group to sort of tear away one's normal defenses and allow you to have a, a more raw look at yourself. You know, you all know that that we um, have a set of psychological defenses that we we carry around with us that prevent us from thinking about very unpleasant things. Most of us don't want to think about the fact, for example, that we're on Earth for a limited amount of time. We don't like to think about uh, concerns we have about our friends, our family, etc. And so we build up these normal defenses. And what psychedelics do in that context is they rip those defenses away and one can have a very powerful uh, experience in which one can really, without those defenses there, begin to look at some things that are normally difficult to deal with. It could be relationships. It could be uh, dealing with longevity. It could be past um, uh, experiences and concerns about about mistakes one may have made in their life. It could be a look to the future about, you know, how do you want to spend the rest of your life? That experience um, or set of experiences is really different than the use of psychedelics in the treatment of psychiatric disorders. So where I come from is I'm a psychiatrist and uh, my specialty clinically, putting my research aside, is treating patients with post-traumatic stress disorder or depression who have not responded to conventional treatment. And what I mean by that are individuals with very severe post-traumatic stress disorder. These could be military veterans. These could be victims of sexual trauma. These could be victims of childhood maltreatment. Many of those individuals, as well as those with very severe depression, do not respond to evidence-based conventional treatments, including um, a number of FDA-approved medications that you all heard of, Zoloft and Paxil and Effexor. They may not respond to evidence-based psychotherapies that work for most people with depression. They may not respond to the neuromodulation techniques that are FDA-approved for treating depression, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, and so this group of patients, this minority of depressed patients and patients with PTSD, but sizable in number, suffer. And, you know, being depressed every day and not being able to sleep and not being able to eat and not being able to experience any pleasure and thinking about suicide all the time is a miserable existence. And as an aside, you all know that that we had more than um, 50,000 suicides in the United States last year, and it remains uh, one of the only uh, leading cause of death that's increasing in number, not decreasing. We've done better with cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, but not with suicide. 
And then there are the patients with post-traumatic stress disorder who are constantly reliving their trauma, be it a rape, a military um, a combat experience, and are unable to fundamentally function either in the family or occupationally. And then there are the substance use disorders, um, alcoholism being uh, the highest prevalence rate in the United States. And then, of course, other substance use disorders like opiate addiction, including heroin addiction, et cetera. So that's where I came to um, psychedelics. As, as more and more small studies started coming out, suggesting that some percentage of these um, very difficult to treat suffering patients might respond to a psychedelic treatment. Dr. Nemiroff, thank you for that uh, introduction, that background. Really appreciate it and grateful and definitely already learning. And, uh, you know, on this podcast, we focus really intently on the economic and quality issues that are plaguing our nation's healthcare system. And we're focused on solutions that improve overall population health, you know, the outcomes that, that make sure that there's there's improved outcomes and, and not just for a, a subset of populations, but for all. So the health equity is addressed as well. And, and we see that depression is one of the most common mental disorders. And you've referenced this. It can cause tremendous challenges and burdens for individuals and families. And I'm, I'd be surprised if there are any of us who really are not feeling some of those at a, at a personal level. It also carries a large economic cost to the country. And the economic burden of major depressive disorders among U.S. adults is estimated around $236 billion, and an increase of more than 35% just in the last 10 or 12 years. And this is only increasing as we observe the fallout from a pandemic, which has fostered anxiety and fear and social isolation. And, and we, we, we've seen a perfect storm right now of, of trauma and genetic risk creating immense suffering. And, and this suffering leads to suicide often. The only And the only cause of top 10 US deaths, which is on the rise. Now, of all the people diagnosed with depression, 30% are diagnosed with treatment-resistant depression. You've, you've mentioned that, or TRD. And TRD rates of suicide are increased. Uh, significant relapse is a risk and high healthcare utilization, which drives up the cost of healthcare. These are all factors with this population. And I'd love for you to explain a little bit more about, you know, if you have further depth to go into the treatment challenges with currently accepted non-pharmacological or pharmacological treatment options. And, and with this population experiencing TRD, you know, what's the potential for psychedelic therapy to to address some of these concerns I've mentioned with, you know, the economics and healthcare quality and overall life improvement. So, so Dan, you, you've opened up a, a really important area, which has to do with access to care for patients with depression. Um, and so let's start with that. No, no one would disagree with the fact that from an economic point of view, untreated, undertreated, or uh, treatment-resistant patients um, overutilize healthcare services. They end up going to the emergency departments more often. They're also, quite frankly, depressed patients. I know you all know this, but for the listeners, depression is a risk factor for the development of heart disease and stroke. 
and is also a major risk factor for a poor outcome for people who've had a heart attack. Um, and so um, if one can treat depression from a population point of view in a more optimal way, we would markedly reduce healthcare utilization and improve not only morbidity, but mortality. So psychiatry, as you know, and behavioral health in general is often carved out of most uh, commercial insurance plans. And that's a real problem because it's limited availability uh, to those even who have commercial insurance. If you then add to the fact that a great many mental health professionals, both psychiatrists and psychologists in the community are cash only providers. They've sort of had it with commercial insurance, the amount of pain you have to go through to get approval for ongoing treatment um, is often really burdensome. And so in many cities in the United States, including Austin, but New York City, Los Angeles, it's extremely hard to find uh, practitioners, both psychologists and psychiatrists, who will actually accept commercial insurance. This created this very bizarre situation in which if you're in Austin and you're indigent, I can, uh, I can absolutely identify providers for you through entities like Integral Care or Blue Bonnet. These are state and federal subsidized uh, entities that provide behavioral health care. If you are wealthy and you can afford treatment um, on a cash-only basis, I can um, find a provider for you. But if you have commercial insurance, it's extremely hard for me to find somebody um, to see you and provide evidence-based care. The second major issue has to do with, we'll start with the psychology side, is that there are very good evidence-based treatments for depression, largely cognitive behavior therapy, interpersonal psychotherapy. These are you know, extremely well-studied, scientifically validated treatments. The vast majority of psychologists in the community do not practice cognitive behavior therapy. They are more like what I would call a rent-a-friend, where you go see them, you tell them your problems, they say, yeah, it's terrible, let's try to problem solve how you can be better. That's not evidence-based treatment. And then in addition, from a pharmacological point of view, two-thirds of depressed patients are treated for depression by family doctors, or internal medicine doctors who aren't necessarily, albeit well-meaning, aren't really, um, and why would they be, totally schooled on the most uh, advanced, state-of-the-art, cutting-edge treatments for depression. So we have layers of obstacles here. We have stigma about psychiatric disorders and reluctance to see medical professionals we have obstacles on the payer side. We have obstacles on the optimal treatment side. And, and to be honest with you guys, if you fracture your femur, I hope you never do, but if you fracture your femur and you go see Dr. Bozik and 99 other orthopedic surgeons, you'll get about a 99% concordance rate on how you should be treated. 
If you go to a mental health professional with PTSD or depression, it is not going to be that tight. You're going to get lots of different opinions because of the lack of familiarity with the current evidence base. So we have lots of challenges. Well, Dr. Nemiroff, you mentioned uh, earlier that your center's initial research has been focused on military veterans living with post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, Texas is the nation's second largest veteran population of 1.6 million. And Central Texas alone is home to more than 250,000 vets, many of whom face lasting and difficult mental health problems related to their military service. And your center has partnered with the Mission Within and the Heroic Hearts Project, which are programs for veterans interested in pursuing psychedelic treatment options. And the work is part of a growing effort to support novel therapies, particularly for veterans. And one of the initial pilot studies in your research included psychedelic-assisted therapy for prolonged grief and spouses of veterans lost in duty, comparing psilocybin to 5-MeO-DMT. And another study is looking at Ibogaine-assisted therapy for PTSD and traumatic brain surgery in Special Forces veterans. Can you describe some of the unique challenges that we have in treating PTSD in veterans? And what is the body of emerging research showing us in terms of the initial evidence of efficacy with psychedelic medicines and psychedelic assisted therapies for that population? Right. So we'll focus on post-traumatic stress disorder and understand that there are um, unique challenges to conducting psychedelic research in the United States. So both of the studies that you mentioned were actually conducting with collaboration uh, with the team in Mexico where um, it is easier to administer these medications. So we do the assessments um, and then the patients go down and get the treatments and then they come back and they get the post assessments and a number of, of other um, really important uh, aspects of the study such as uh, brain imaging as we're trying to discover how do psychedelics change the brain um, in an individual with PTSD before and after treatment. Those two studies that you mentioned um, were driven by the fact that PTSD, particularly in the military population, and particularly in those with concurrent uh, traumatic brain injury and PTSD, is extremely treatment resistant. So clinically, I've seen dozens, maybe hundreds of, of patients who come back from Iraq or Afghanistan and fundamentally say, you know, they have all of the cardinal features of PTSD. They are uh, depressed. They are having nightmares. They're having trouble sleeping. They're having flashbacks of their index trauma. They are drinking too much alcohol. They are not doing well with their children or their spouses, and they're not doing well occupationally. And so the question is, you know, what could be brought to bear to help these people? And what happened was that a, a number of these veterans ended up um, largely by serendipity having a psychedelic experience. So one or another pioneer in the field uh, ended up reaching out to the Navy SEALs or the Rangers and fundamentally said, you know, I was in Costa Rica and I uh, had an experience with ayahuasca. 
or another psychedelic, and it fundamentally changed my life. And so these these young men, largely men, uh, were coming to see me and fundamentally saying, look, I was on a road to disaster. I was drinking all the time. I was abusive to my family. And I had this psychedelic experience and it changed my life. And I've lost the taste for alcohol. And I really looked inward and saw what kind of person are you? And I'm on a totally different course. Now, you know that the plural of anecdote is not data, but you know, in my entire career, what I've learned, if nothing else, is you have to listen to your patients. And so after I heard this the fifth time, the 10th time, the 20th time, I started thinking, you know, there really seems to be something real here. And it was around that time that MAPS published the first MDMA study uh, in PTSD, which was positive. And then they published this a very large study um, uh, that was published in Nature Medicine, which is one of the very most stringent, high-ranking journals in our field. And it demonstrated the largest magnitude effect benefit of the psychedelic in any psychiatric condition. And so once I saw that, I was convinced that there's something here. And we could talk more about, you know, my thoughts about depression a little bit later in, in, in our conversation. But for PTSD, which is, in my mind, even more difficult than depression to get patients into real remission, this was an eye-opener to me. Dr. Nemiroff, I'd like to dive deeper into your current research. You know, it's funded by groups such as the Multidisciplinary Association, for psychedelic studies, you referenced them. It's uh, the acronym is MAPS. It's a nonprofit research organization that has played a key role in advancing psychedelic research to improve the lives of people with anxiety, depression, and PTSD. And under Rick Doblin's leadership, MAPS has been carrying the torch for psychedelic research now for nearly four decades. But we're beginning to see a mainstreaming effect of that research from other more conventional funding sources. And recently, the National Institutes of Health awarded a grant to scientists at Johns Hopkins University to, to study whether psilocybin can help people quit smoking tobacco. And until now, the lack of support from NIH on psychedelic research had been a major hurdle in the field. But now the fact that they're interested in these types of studies shows incredible promise in the advancement of psychedelic research. Can you discuss some of the challenges and, and the emerging opportunities in getting research studies funded? And with MDMA nearing the finish line for FDA approval, do you see this as an opportunity for clinical research to reach a more critical mass of acceptance? That's a great question. So I'm tickled by the um, change in the NIH policy. And we, in fact, have a very large grant uh, submitted to NIH to look at the effects of psilocybin on uh, patients with alcohol use disorder. And the tact we're taking is to use conventional FDA-approved treatments in a cohort of patients who fulfill criteria for alcohol use disorder, and then take the non-responders and randomize them to a therapeutic dose of psilocybin versus a non-therapeutic sort of control dose. 
and I have high hopes that this study will be funded. The reason I'm doing that study is because I've been so impressed by what my patients have told me about the um, ability of a psychedelic experience to, to actually reduce alcohol craving in people with fundamentally with alcoholism. So I think it's a game changer. I'm well aware of the Hopkins study, and there are a number of other um, NIH grants that have been submitted. Having said that, uh, the NIH uh, pathway for funding is torturous. It's a peer review process. It's extremely rigorous. There's never enough money to fund everything. Uh, and so what we've done is try to appeal to, on the philanthropic side, to uh, foundations and individuals that might be willing to support our efforts. And in that regard, uh, we have just received a $1.2 million grant from uh, a foundation uh, that is supporting what I think is a remarkable study, which is to take patients with treatment refractory depression and treat them with a combination of psilocybin and transcranial magnetic stimulation. TMS, as it's known, is an FDA-approved treatment for depression, but the hypothesis we will test in this study is that psilocybin will fundamentally change the brain in a way that will make it more receptive to the therapeutic effects of TMS. And we could never do that study uh, without the support fundamentally from the philanthropic sector. Well, Dr. Nemiroff, I'm fascinated by what you're talking about in terms of the impact of the brain and how the ingestion of a compound that's created by a fungus or a toad, as in the case of psilocybin or DMT, can create a novel state of consciousness with the power to change one's perspective on things. I mean, not just during the journey, but long after the molecule has left the body. I mean, if you take the example of psilocybin, I mean, there's consistent and repeated research that shows that a vast majority of those receiving moderate high doses of psilocybin have mystical experiences that are forever life-altering. I mean, I've seen studies like 80 to 90% of people reporting their psychedelic journey as one of the top five most meaningful and spiritual experiences in their entire life, comparing it to the birth of their first child or, or the death of a parent. And the classic psychedelics like, like mescaline, LSD, psilocybin, and DMT, from what I understand, have effects that emerge from a particular type of serotonin receptor in the brain. And people commonly report a complete dissolution of their ego and a feeling of connectedness with the universe around them. So I wanted to see if you could expound on how these mystical experiences on psychedelics can create such long-standing healing impacts at the psycho-emotional level. And, and then also, is there any evidence of psychedelic neuroplasticity where the brain can actually become rewired? So those are great questions. So let me start off and say that although the, the psychedelics as a group share a common pharmacological property, which is uh, acting as a serotonin receptor 2A subtype uh, serotonin receptor agonist, meaning it activates that receptor. It's really unclear what the real mechanism of action of psychedelics are. Because as you yourself said, psilocybin is a six to eight hour experience, but the effects appear to persist for quite a long period of time. 
And that's one of the reasons we need to to understand what the real mechanism of action of psychedelics are. Secondly, you know, the psychedelic experience is not for the faint-hearted. It's pretty intense. If you look at the paper that was published in JAMA Psychiatry by Davis et al., the uh, depression study with psilocybin, and you look at a table in the supplement of the article, Table 8, uh, it lists the, quote, adverse events, and they're, they're pretty scary. I mean, a number of patients felt they were losing their minds. They felt that they might never recover. They had a lot of anxiety. Many of them had crying spells. It's an intense experience. So one of the questions that remain unanswered is whether these medications might have a therapeutic effect in PTSD or depression or substance use disorder in the absence of a psychedelic experience? What if you had a way to block the psychedelic experience uh, and then only have the long-lasting benefit? And that's a very active avenue of investigation. As far as your question about neuroplasticity, there have been a few brain imaging studies that would suggest that we, you know, what we all know which is these are powerful drugs that affect brain activity. Why do I think they work in any way therapeutically? I think that many of the disorders I described to you, people get stuck in what I call the circuit of hell. So if you're depressed, you have these thoughts that go through your mind all the time that go like this. I'm a loser. I'm a burden on my family. I have screwed up so many things in my life. I failed at everything. Uh, my relationships are in shambles. Nobody wants to be around me. I can't do anything right. I might as well just kill myself and do the world a favor. And those ruminating thoughts are sort of the default uh, mode for people with depression. Given any kind of void in time, when they're not otherwise occupied, that's where they go. In PTSD, it's a different kind of hell. It's more about the experience. Um, and in PTSD, as I'm sure you all know, there is um, a two fundamental pathological things going on. One is a failure to extinguish the experience, which is just because you were mugged, walking down a street in the middle of the night doesn't mean that every time you walk down a street in the middle of the night, you're going to get mugged. But for people with PTSD, they can't extinguish that notion. And then secondly, they also have a second unfortunate phenomenon called fear generalization. Not only are they concerned about that particular trauma, but they start generalizing their fear to all sorts of other potential situations. So in both of these conditions, there's this reverberating circuit. And we, we're beginning to sort of understand what the neuroanatomy of, of this is and what brain regions are affected. And I personally think this is not data. I would hypothesize that what psychedelics do is they help you get out of that rut, out of that circle of hell, and, and begin to be able to 
see the world in a much more realistic way, quite apart from your previous experience. Dr. Nemiroff, I'm I'm interested as I'm hearing you talk about uh, the convergence of of psychedelics. You know, we've seen the psychedelics are making some remarkable developments in recent years, but you know, there's also this uh, remarkable development that's kind of happening concurrently with meditation, and there's an increased focus on meditation and cognitive neuroscience, and it's led to a cross cultural classification of standard meditation styles that are validated by functional and structural neuroanatomical data. Meanwhile, the, you know, the renaissance of psychedelic research has shed light on the neurophysiology of altered states of consciousness induced by classic psychedelics, as we've been discussing. So I'm curious about the bridging, if you've thought about the bridging of meditation and psychedelics and how these two modalities could work together potentially symbiotically and giving the overlapping experiences of ego dissolution and expanded consciousness that uh, that people who practice meditation or experience psychedelics or who've been prescribed psychedelics can experience should we consider meditation as a core component of psychedelic therapy from the preparation phase to integration so the first thing i'd say is that there is absolutely a place for mindfulness which is a form of meditation and there are studies uh, uh, largely they've come out of Toronto, but elsewhere that have shown that mindfulness uh, as a form of meditation can be quite uh, effective in treating certainly mild to moderate depression. What's interesting is that um, in my conversations with, with devotees of meditation and mindfulness, they're sort of dichotomized in that there is a group of those individuals who feel that in some ways psychedelic is a cheap shortcut, which takes weeks of meditation and, and a real dedication uh, to, to that modality. And then people who do psychedelics get there, you know, in a day. And is it the same thing? And is it the same place? And, you know, I don't know that we have any data about that. Obviously, it'd be really interesting to do a functional brain imaging study in which we looked at people after, I don't know, six weeks of, of meditation training compared to a psychedelic experience and see if the brain changes are the same. I think in both cases, we again have to separate out the difference between exploring your inner self and trying to maximize your growth potential as a um, uh, open-minded individual without a psychiatric illness compared to those with a psychiatric illness where you're trying to target uh, particular symptoms in depression and PTSD. And I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't at some point during our conversation say that a couple of things that 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 I think need to be said. The first is these are powerful medications. And they should be administered in a supervised environment to maximize a subject's safety and feelings of comfort while they're undergoing this experience. And that secondly, we're only just touching the surface on answering the question of who might they benefit and who might they not benefit. I'm sufficiently old that, you know, when I 
was on call as an intern um, in the emergency room, we would see people come in with bad trips. Well, you know, they take an LSD, they assume that's what it was. Perhaps it was, perhaps it wasn't, but they were terrified. They were super anxious. They were hallucinating. Um, and they wanted us to give them something to help them get out of this. So I think we need to learn a lot about who is this good for and who isn't it good for. And I think if, if we allow the widespread availability of psychedelics, my fear is there are going to be some, some adverse consequences and that we're going to end up back in the early 1970s uh, and none of us want to get there. Well, there certainly seems to be, based on what you're saying, Dr. Nemiroff, a great potential for these treatments as an emerging therapeutic paradigm. And consequently, it's been estimated that the U.S. psychedelic drug market is projected to grow from $2 billion in 2020 to $10.75 billion uh, in the next uh, year or two by having research innovation and the increasing prevalence of treatment-resistant depression and mental health disorders. And this is a growth rate that is even uh, projected to outpace the legal U.S. cannabis market and anticipating a renaissance. I mean, there's many psychedelic medicine companies out there that are that are conducting initial public offerings. And it, it just seems like now there's a, a new beginning for us to understand the potential for these uh, emerging new medicines and in and, and Western uh, medicine. So, I, you know, as a both a researcher and a psychiatrist, can you provide your perspective on the future of psychedelic medicine in the years to come and, and how will your research goals at the center play a part in that emerging landscape? So let, let me, let me speak about the commercialization issue. I've had many conversations with many companies who are in this space. And um, what's really interesting about these companies is that they're not your usual startup companies. So most Startup companies that are driven by venture, someone has an idea perhaps of a new medication or a new technology, it gets vetted by the financial guys and gals, and then they end up making an investment. And those kinds of companies have pretty uh, a rigorous financial oversight. Many of the, of the psychedelic companies are quite different. So they were largely driven by people who had psychedelic experiences or had loved ones that suffered with terrible treatment-resistant illness. But for those that are driven by people who went to a yurt in you know, Costa Rica and had an ayahuasca experience and it changed their life, and then they decided this would be something they want to really invest in, both personally and professionally. And so what I always say to these folks and there, you know, there were about 90 such companies in the United States. I think a few have fallen by the wayside uh, with the market downturn. But fundamentally, I always raise the issue of can this be commercially successful? All right. So there are two entities right now that are in the lead here. One is MAPS for MDMA for PTSD, and the other is Compass Pathways for psilocybin. They both had positive trials, and they will um, be wrapping up either doing another trial on the one hand or putting their package together uh, for an FDA submission on the other. And so the question is, what does this look like? 
So understand that in oncology, charging people $30,000 for a treatment is not really, unfortunately, out of the ordinary anymore. And there are third-party payers that'll pay for that. What we're talking about here is a, psychi a psychiatric treatment for either depression or PTSD uh, that will be administered either once or twice within a short period of time, and then not again for X amount of time, for a few months, maybe. And we need more data about how many people are sustained in remission after a treatment and how many end up needing to be retreated. But let's, you know, for argument's sake, say that patients get two treatments within a week because uh, that's one of the paradigms that's been used. And then they will not be allowed another treatment for three months. So let's say in the worst scenario, they will get four treatments, maybe two at a time. So at the most, eight treatments. How much are we going to charge for that in order to make this a commercially viable um, operation? Well, we're not charging $30,000 for it because that's not going to fly. Let's say we charge $5,000. If we charge $5,000 for the two treatments, it's not like medication that's taken every day. Then you have to do the, the economic modeling to see how many patients are going to be getting this. And then the whole issue of the third-party payers, what will they require before they will approve the treatment? Right now, if I want to prescribe a new antidepressant or a new antipsychotic, I've got to deal with the insurance company who wants me to prescribe some generic medication that I don't want to prescribe. That's the first thing to think about. The second is, what about the psychotherapy part? So the FDA has never been confronted with this before, but what MAPS is fundamentally going to propose is that the approval is not just for MDMA, it's for MDMA and psychotherapy. And what's the FDA going to require in terms of the psychotherapy? Is it going to be certified? Who's going to do the certification? Are they going to agree with MAPS? On their certification, is it going to have to be doctoral level psychologists who do it? And then how do you define the psychotherapy? The same with um, COMPASS and psilocybin. And we recently submitted an article for publication asking the question, what is psychedelic assisted therapy? What is actually the nature of it? Because as it's been described thus far, it's not cognitive behavior therapy. You can't really do therapy with somebody during the psychedelic experience. So it has to be afterwards and what is really meant by integration. So all of these issues are going to have to be worked out before we can get to a commercially viable product. Now, there is one caveat, which could be a game changer. And that's the question of microdosing. If it turns out, and I'm not saying it will, but if it turns out that microdoses that are not psychedelic are therapeutic and you take them every day, so 
a milligram of psilocybin instead of 25 milligrams, as an example, or a couple of micrograms of LSD every day, which didn't change your everyday functioning, but was therapeutic, then that would be a different economic model. Well, Dr. Nemiroff, you're you're bringing to mind so many things to consider, and I'm, I'm sure that our listeners along with me are learning so much, and I'm really grateful for your time with us today. I'd like to wrap up the conversation to build on some of the challenges and considerations that you've identified and, and take it a step further and talk about the profound ethical considerations in the use of psychedelics. And although these are not typically classical drugs of abuse and don't necessarily drive dopaminergic effects, with the exception of MDMA, we need to be very careful with these compounds. And mescaline, psilocybin, and ayahuasca have been used, as you mentioned, for thousands of years. They've been administered in cultural contexts that are ritualized and used with use limited to religious or healing purposes. And if you let these compounds out to an uninitiated culture at large, it could possibly destabilize cultural institutions. However, the upside consideration is that we should also think about the ethics of not formally introducing psychedelic medicines to our society and for those who need it. Not only do these medicines, as you've said, show great potential for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression, for anxiety and PTSD, I've seen some research that shows that users of psychedelics are actually more eco-conscious and connected more meaningfully to others that we share our planet with. And we could definitely use more of that in this world. So as we wrap up our conversation today, I'd love to ask if you could share or discuss some of the ethical challenges that we have on the horizon as psychedelic medicines reach more of a critical mass. And, and how should we possibly integrate these types of treatments in the clinical setting to provide value-based behavioral health care? First and foremost, all medications that are going to be used clinically in any way, shape, or form have to have a certain level of quality assurance so that when you take a, a 325 milligram tablet of aspirin, you can pretty much count on the fact that that's how much is in there. It may be 324, it may be 326, but by and large, it's going to be 325. When you go to the mushroom store in a state that has legalized uh, magic mushrooms, which is the source of psilocybin, and then you are instructed by someone who's presumably in the know to cut off a certain quantity of that mushroom, there's not a lot of quality assurance here. So you don't know whether you're getting 20 milligrams of psilocybin or 25 or 40. And there, the differences in the concentrations of psilocybin and other psychoactive compounds in various mushrooms is variable. And so my very first ethical concern is that if Oregon, as it has, legalized psilocybin and will allow individuals to go to the mushroom store and buy them and take them to a, quote, therapist who will guide them in their journey, I have real concerns that those patients are not being screened for psychiatric disorder, substance use disorder, medical disorders. I have concerns about that. I also think there's certain kinds of personalities that would have a lot of difficulty taking psychedelics. I'm thinking now of people 
who do not have a psychiatric illness, but who are uh, interested in psychedelics from a, a, a growth point of view, but who might be incredibly rigid, controlling, people that don't want to give up those defenses, I don't think they in general are going to have a good experience with them. The good news is that these are not drugs of abuse. You know, nobody takes a psychedelic every day because you couldn't function. But the bad news is that we have at the current time no predictors of who will benefit, who will have a good experience, who will have a bad experience, who, if they're suffering with a psychiatric illness, will benefit or not. And we certainly need to try to understand that. You know, I, in general, you know, feel like, uh, as you described, uh, we want individuals to be able to do within reason whatever they can to to maximize their potential. And if that includes psychedelics, I'm absolutely all for it. But what I don't want to do is see um, a number of tragedies of individuals who took psychedelics, ended up with a, a tragic outcome, and then that fundamentally changed the dialogue. As far as the obstacles go, you know that that I've received hundreds and hundreds of emails from individuals who are begging me to give them psychedelics because they um, are suffering with PTSD or depression or God knows what. And we can only accept a limited number of patients into the clinical trials that we're doing. Clinical trials, by the definition, has a number of exclusionary criteria. So most of the patients who want to get psychedelics and be in a trial end up getting excluded because they have comorbid diabetes or they have a past history of a heart attack or they're 90 years old. And I would love to be able on a compassionate use protocol to be able to say, take patients with metastatic cancer and be able to administer in a controlled setting a psychedelic, which might help them deal with what's coming. But I can't do that right now. I have to get every single trial approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And to say that it is a, a remarkably difficult process, incredibly time-consuming, would be an understatement. Well, Dr. Nimroff, I, I really appreciate you joining us this week on the Race to Value podcast and you know sharing with our listeners the research that you're focusing on at the Center for Psychedelic Research and Therapy at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas in Austin. I mean, you've really helped us you know, understand how these uh, psychedelics can be effective in the, the treatment of treatment-resistant depression, anxiety, how we could think about optimizing delivery and clinical outcomes and, and helping us really understand how these treatments work. So I, again, thank you for your thought leadership and research expertise and sharing that with our listeners this week. My absolute pleasure. And uh, uh, you guys do a great job. So thanks much for having me.